This morning we continue our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, today we're in chapter 11, and our focus will be on verses 17 through 34. That's found on page 958 in the Bibles that have been provided for you there in the rows. If you do not have your own copy of the scriptures with you this morning, I'd invite you to follow along there. First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by God, by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would use your word to build your church. Open our eyes and our hearts to the truth. Draw us near to you in faith and obedience. Help me to speak. Help my dear brothers and sisters to hear. And may we be open and yielded to the work of your spirit. Lord, I pray the fruit of this message would glorify you in our lives and forever. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the gallbladder is a wonderful part of our bodies. It's been designed by God to, to, to store bile and aid in the digestive process process. Now, I bet none of you expected ever to hear a sermon start like that on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but seriously, I'm going somewhere here. The, the, the gallbladder store, stores bile that's created in the liver, and, and that bile is used to, to break down certain fats that we eat. It, it fulfills a very important uh, purpose in our diets. It's, it's one of those organs that you never really think about until something goes wrong. It's kind of like the sound system at church. No one notices that you have a sound system until something's not working properly. The same is true of, uh, uh, of the gallbladder. When the gallbladder stops functioning properly, it, it won't be long before you know it. Excruciating pain, nausea, vomiting, and this is a great start, 
The, the overall feeling that, that, that you're not long for this earth and you're okay with it because you feel so bad. In other words, it's not a lot of fun. Trust me, I know. This is personal testimony. I was in my mid-30s when my gallbladder started to fail, and, and before they would remove it, they, they wanted to perform a certain test to, to make sure that the reason I was so sick and in pain was really the gallbladder. It was neat and, and kind of scary looking back on it, but, but what they did, and, and Amy, I apologize, I can't remember the name of the test, it always makes me nervous when there are medical professionals present, but what they did, they, they, they injected this radioactive material in me that, that, that was supposed to go into my gallbladder, causing it to, to, to either operate like the gallbladder should or mimic the symptoms of why it's not working. Working, And the cool thing is, is that you're actually able to watch it all take place on a screen. So you can see the, the dye wash in, or the radioactive material wash in, and it's neat. And then the technician says, well, now we're going to find out if your gallbladder works or not. So I want you to tell me whether you start feeling any discomfort and what scale it's on. And, and all of a sudden, I, I broke out into a cold sweat and, and the pain kicked in and, and, and I started feeling like I was going to be sick. And she says, on a scale of 1 to 10, where are you? I said, 11. And she said, well, it's your gallbladder. And I was like, really? But, but the test served to amplify the problem. The, the, the test didn't cause my gallbladder issues. They were present already, but, but the test revealed clearly, it amplified, if you will, what was going on, what was wrong in my body. Well, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7, 17 through 34, we, we see something similar happening in the context of the church in Corinth. In these verses, Paul is addressing a, a significant problem in the church, things that were taking place in the Lord's Supper, but, but these were amplified. The, these weren't problems that were just with the Lord's Supper. These are problems that existed in, in the church's attitude, and, and as it took place in the context of the Lord's Supper, with, with the Lord's Supper as a, as a backdrop, if you will, the, the problems were amplified even more. Does that make sense? And, and, and just as the, the test on my gallbladder magnified the problem that already existed within me, so also the, the Corinthians' behavior when they were supposed to be celebrating what Christ had done for them was magnified in the way that they took part in the Lord's Supper. Now, I wrestled this morning with whether or not we should even, we should celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. We, we certainly could have. I would like to do it more often, but, but I chose not to for a specific reason. One reason. I, I want you to understand as we look at this passage that faithfulness and unity within the body of Christ is supposed to be an ongoing characteristic of the church. We're, we're not called together just to appear unified and loving towards one another just when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The, the Lord's Supper is, it should be the place where that unity and that love for one another is magnified because it already exists. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to deal specifically, as Paul does, with the Lord's Supper, with in the back of our minds, recognizing that everything that Paul is, is addressing in the life of the Corinthians are things that, 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 that go beyond simply one act of worship in the church's life. So, so, so listen with that in mind. Our, our spiritual health consists of, of a daily awareness of our desperate need for all that Jesus has done for us. 
And it also exists with an awareness of our need for one another. That might be an area where we struggle more than we realize. The, the Corinthians had lost sight of both of these realities and, and it was so bad that their celebration of all that Jesus had accomplished for them had become a perversion in the eyes of God rather than something that was honoring to him. Now as we tackle these important verses, I want to do so under three points with, with the prayer that we will leave this service with a greater sense of, of reverence for God, a greater dependence on Christ, and a greater commitment to one another as the church. Point one, we'll, we'll focus on uh, the Corinthians' problems being amplified in the Lord's Supper. Point two, is that the gospel is proclaimed in the Lord's Supper. And in three, we'll see the remedy that Paul prescribes that, that, that would make the celebration of the Lord's Supper acceptable once again in Corinth. Remember, brothers and sisters, this isn't just a Corinthian problem. We must all be mindful of the fact that the only reason we bear the name Christian is because of what Christ has done for us. The, the Corinthians had, had lost their way because they lost sight of this reality. And we must be on guard to be sure that it does not happen to us as well. Let's look first at verses 17 through 22. The, the Corinthians' problems amplified. Paul writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, the problems are, are clear in these verses, and, and I don't think need a ton of expl explanation, really because Paul has addressed them in earlier Chapters. It's been several months since we were in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians. So, so let me quickly review what Paul has addressed so far. In chapters 1, 3, and 8, Paul addressed the shameful divisions that existed within the church. Remember, the church had divided in part over which leader each faction in the church identified themselves with. And Paul reminded them that, 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 that leaders, while a good gift from God, God has supplied them, Le leaders are good for the instruction and health of the church, but Jesus is the only one to whom we are to be devoted. In chapter 6, Paul addresses another problem which was related to the divided nature of the congregation Believers were, were taking one another to court, suing one another in front of unbelievers. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul addresses the problem of sexual immorality within the church. The, the Corinthian Christians had, had allowed an unacceptable relationship to exist within the church. A, a man was engaged in immoral relationship with, with his father's wife, probably his stepmother. Not only had they remained silent, but apparently some of them were quite okay with this arrangement. Paul concludes chapter 6 by reminding the church and us that, that, that Jesus paid the greatest price for us. And so it's, we must glorify him in how we live. Listen to chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Paul exhorts them to flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Are you, do you not know that your body is the temple of, of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God 
in your body. In chapter 7, Paul addresses another type of division that existed within the church. Some of the married thought that it would be better for them to abstain from sexual intimacy in the marriage because that would make them more suited or better suited to serve God. Some were even asking the question, is it okay for me to divorce my spouse in order to live a life devoted to the Lord? Paul, of course, says no, marriage is a, a good gift from God. In chapters 8 through 11, Paul addresses issues of Christian liberty and, and, and the fact that love for fellow believers and for the Lord must compel us to lay aside certain rights for the good of others. The, the liberties that, that were being celebrated were causing young Christians to stumble in their faith and even unbelievers to doubt the validity of the gospel. It's a very quick summation of, 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 of some of the problems that Paul has addressed so far. But here's what I want to point out this morning as it relates to our passage. As Paul confronts and corrects the Corinthians in their sin, we need to keep in mind, based on the body of 1 Corinthians, what we see, that Paul is, is dealing primarily with a group of people in the context of the church who were unrepentant in their sin, either due to ignorance or, or to a hardness of heart and their unwillingness to submit themselves to the truth. It's important that we view these verses with this in mind as we move forward for two reasons. First of all, Paul has some very hard things to say to the Corinthians in these verses about how they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And also, number two, we need to keep in mind, brothers and sisters, every day of our Christian lives is a battle against sin and temptation, against weakness. And if we had to wait until we were perfect and sinless to be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we would never come to the table. So it's important that we understand to whom Paul was writing, not that we can't learn from and be warned by and even be encouraged by this passage, but understand that, that Paul's hearers weren't your average Christian trying to live life faithfully. They were entrenched in sinful patterns of behavior who needed a wake-up call from the Apostle Paul. In verses 17 through 22, Paul points out that, that, that the Corinthians' participation in the Lord's Supper will, 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 will simply amplify the sin in the congregation, but he even goes so far as to say, you know what, what you're doing is, is not the Lord's Supper at all. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. But remember, earlier in chapter 11, Paul actually had commended the church for their obedience and their, their efforts at trying to, to follow the apostolic tradition that he had passed on to them in teaching. But, but in verse 17, his tone changes. Paul says, but, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Now, we know that Paul knows about the divisions that existed in the church because members of Chloe's household had, had given him the report on the condition of the church. Now, the divisions that Paul is speaking of here in chapter 11 are a bit different than the divisions addressed earlier because the divisions here seem to focus on being between the, the wealthy and the poor, the haves and the have-nots, if you will, in the church. Paul had not seen any of this for himself, but he believed the testimony that he had heard about the church was credible. That, that Greek word that's translated in part is a, really a challenging one for translators because it's translated at some places as an adverb and at other places as a noun. And, and it's important because it does affect how you understand the verse. When he says, in part, in, in the ESV as I read it, that's a translation as, a, as an adverb. In that case, it, it reads like Paul is saying that he finds the report of their divisions credible, but he hasn't seen it for himself, so, so he's not going all in. 
But if you translate it as a noun, the Greek word means report. So in this context, Paul is saying, I hear that divisions exist among you, and I believe the report. Which seems to fit, I think, a little better in understanding that passage. But either way, as you look at the context, you see what Paul's getting at here. It says that the, the existence of divisions is real. He gets it, and he writes chapter 11 to address it. Either way, Paul has some hard words for the Corinthians. But he begins by making an important point in verse 19. The fact that divisions existed within the church really served to, to set apart the sheep from the goats. And the way that you could tell the difference would, what would be based on their behavior. The, 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 the true believers were set apart from the non-believers based on how they responded in the context of the conflict in Corinth. Does that make sense? Paul continues, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you be recognized. How are the genuine Christians recognized when factions exist? By, by how they respond. It's not always even a matter of who's right or, who, or who's wrong in the situation, but how do they relate to other people in the midst of the conflict. We, we know that the Corinthians were an incredibly immature church, so it seems to me that Paul is preparing them to respond appropriately. In his rebuke, he's going to tell them how they ought to respond as believers in this situation. But divisions and disagreements do arise in churches, every church. And how we respond in the context of those disagreements matters. It, it reveals the genuineness of our faith. And so we should listen well and, and, and be warned and even encouraged by God to ensure that we are making every effort to respond in love to one another in the body of Christ, whether we are agreeing or disagreeing, whether, well, whatever the issues may be, that we are going in love to one another, speaking the truth in one, love to one another, caring for one another. In verse 20, Paul makes a shocking statement. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, it's important that we understand that in New Testament times, when, when the Gentile churches would gather uh, together they would have what was called a love feast which would often be held at the conclusion of worship and, and this was a meal they ate together that was often ended with the celebration of the Lord's Supper so as Paul is condemning them for eating and, uh, or, or not sharing or, or getting drunk and all the things that he's saying here it's likely that he's referencing first their actions in the love feast before the actual participation in the Lord's Supper but the, the, the behavior in the love feast was, was so reprehensible that, that it, did it actually perverted the Lord's Supper in fact, that's, that's the shocker here. Paul is saying that the way you're behaving before the Lord's Supper is, is so unchristian that, 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 that when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, it doesn't even count. It's not valid. That's a wake-up call, is it not? Paul then lists the, the offending behaviors. When, when they gathered to eat, some would go ahead and, and, and eat without everyone else being there. Some had no food. Some had so much wine that they were getting drunk on it. So, so they weren't waiting. They, 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 they just ate when they felt like it. That's a sign of no unity. The, the poor had no food, so they were hungry, and, and, and the others were, were filled. What is this a description of? A, a church that is united and, and serving one another in love? Or is it a focus on, of, a, of a church that is simply looking at themselves. The church in Corinth, as we've seen from their practice, was a, was a church that was wrapped up in the influence of the culture that they found themselves in. 
But they were also a church in the throes of what we would call the sinful condition. We all know our tendency to get wrapped up in and and drawn into the desire to simply focus on ourselves. And when we're that focused on ourselves, we have no room for Jesus. Paul continues, verse 22, he says, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Can you see the extent of the scandal here? Those, the, those who were wealthy were despising the poor and the church in general because of their unwillingness to share. This is the very opposite of the gospel. In just a few moments, we're going to look at the verses where Paul describes the, the Lord's Supper as Jesus communicated it to him. But what's taking place in the Lord's Supper? It's the gospel, right? It's a picture of the gospel. just want you to know those who keep score for the uh, call to worship, the, the fact that we have the same one this week as we did last week was by design. Do you remember what it was this morning? Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. Jesus left the, 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 the glories of, of, of his position as, as the Son of God, eternal. We, we, we sang about it. Mike's song selections were awesome today. They fit perfectly with where we're going. Exalt Jesus on high, the eternal, uncreated God takes on flesh. And humbles himself to the point of obedience to death on a cross. Giving himself freely that we would be redeemed. Where is the spirit of Christ in the behavior of the Corinthians leading up to to the Lord's Supper? That's that's the scandal. There's there's no evidence of the gospel in, in how they responded to one another. So how could they then gather and and eat the bread and drink the cup proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes? How can they be okay with that when they've just, in essence, hated one another in their overwhelming love for themselves? Does that help you see the ugliness of the situation here? All that sinful selfishness was there whether it was a Lord's Supper day or not. There's a problem. This is, this is tragic. The, the Lord's Supper is, a, is, is to be a time of, of sober reflection on the price that was paid. And it also reminds us of the assurance that we have as as Christians to be able to take comfort and and confidence in the salvation that Jesus provides. But they missed it all. This is my body, which is for you. This is my blood shed for you. It's a command to the church to, to take it together. It's a public testimony, but they loved themselves more than they loved their Lord. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the gospel. Let's look at verses 23 through 26. Paul continues, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now over the past eight and a half years, this passage has been quoted more than any other within the context of the worship services here at New Hope because we read them every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The Corinthians were not celebrating the Lord's Supper even though they thought they were because they had lost sight of the purpose of the celebration. 
This gospel reminder of the Lord's Supper comforts and encourages us because we remember that Jesus has done everything that needed to be done in order to restore us to God. This should be the source of of great assurance for those of us who believe, a source of assurance for those of us who at times struggle in our faith. We, We look to the gospel, to, to, to the Lord's Supper, which illustrates that gospel of, of one who did all that needed to be done in order to reconcile us to God. For some here, this is the reminder that you need today. No matter how tough it is, if your faith is in Christ, you are secure. You are safe in Jesus. Even when your faith is weak, even when you struggle, you are safe in Christ. Your salvation is not wrapped up in your ability to believe, your ability to obey, or even the level of your joy. Salvation is a gift of God received through faith in Christ. That is the basis of the gospel. Now, we we grow, we we understand there are implications for what we believe. Spiritual growth involves a following and a desire to honor God. But at its core, salvation is our accepting something we don't deserve by someone who, who, who paid a price that he didn't deserve in order to reconcile us to God. It's a gift received through faith in Christ. Faith in Christ, not faith in the ability to have faith. Faith in what Jesus has done for you. So cling to him, dear one. Be assured in what he has done. Now we often approach the Lord's Supper really from three perspectives. First, we do so by looking back on what Christ has done. Jesus took the bread and broke it and he gave thanks and did the same with the wine. In both cases, it was a commandment to his disciples and to us to what? To do these things ongoing in remembrance of him. We remember that it was his body that was beaten, bruised, and and pierced as he bore the wrath of God for our sins. So as we eat the bread, which represents his body, we remember the price that was paid. We remember that it was his blood that was shed as the payment for our sins, establishing a new covenant between God and man, making it possible for for all people, no matter what their nationality, to come to God through faith in the one who shed his blood to redeem them. So we drink the juice. Sorry, we don't do wine. (laughs) But we drink the juice remembering the price that Jesus paid for us. The once and for all time sacrifice that has been made in order to reconcile us to God. We look back with a sober joy and a confidence in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second, as I like to remind you, we we look around at one another because the Lord's Supper is a celebration of the church. Whether rich or poor, no matter what our skin color may be, no matter what our past sins might have been, we are all one through faith in Christ. The Corinthians had lost sight of this and and dishonored the Lord, but we must not. We are one in Christ, brothers and sisters. We need one another and we must never forget it. And and finally, when we particularly participate in the Lord's Supper, we we look ahead. Verse 26, we see that we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly until Jesus returns. So in faith, we look back, we look around, and we longingly look ahead until the day that Jesus returns to bring us home. When the church celebrates the Lord's Supper, it is an utterly Christ-centered event. And this was not the case in Corinth. So Paul calls the church to repent of their sinful perversion of the worship of God. The remedy prescribed, verses 27 through 34. Paul continues with hard words. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when I come, or so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And the other things I will give directions. About the other things I will give directions when I come. Verses 27 through 32 are a warning against the danger of perverting the Lord's Supper, while verses 33 and 34 are practical suggestions to the Corinthians to aid in their repentance until Paul is able to to help them personally address these matters more fully. Verse 27 is is a clear statement on the importance of celebrating the Lord's Supper with the proper attitude. Paul says, whoever takes part in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What what does it mean to take part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Well, we we see in the case of the Corinthians, it was because of the divisions that existed that, that, that made the sacrifice of Christ, in essence, seem insignificant to their lives. Their preoccupations with themselves blinded them to the needs of others within the church. But there are also other ways in which Christians can take part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. When we are unwilling to repent of known sin, and then we choose to take part in the Lord's Supper, that is doing so in an unworthy manner. Why would I say that? Now notice I didn't say when we are guilty of sin and and take part in the Lord's Supper, we're doing That's not what I said. I said when we are harboring a known sin that we are unwilling to repent of, forsake, turn away from, and then take part in the Lord's Supper, we're doing so in an unworthy manner. Why would I say that? Well, what did I just go on and on about what the Lord's Supper represents? The price that was paid in our union with the one who paid it. To say, you know what, I'm going to love this one sin more than I love the one who gave his life to redeem me from it is to partake in an unworthy manner. We, we don't attain perfection in this life. That's not what I'm preaching here. But we need the reminder that, that, that the teaching of Scripture concerning the faithful Christian life, even though it's all of God's grace, never gives us permission to live our lives pursuing sin. We're going to battle sin enough as we try to be faithful. We're going to fail enough as we try to be faithful. But when we harden ourselves against the truth and love a sin more than we love our Savior, then we should not take communion, the Lord's Supper. Now that's, that's one way to, 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 to take part in the Lord's Supper in, a, in an unworthy manner. To have unresolved conflicts with, within the church is also to take part in an unworthy manner. What, what, what is it corporately? It's a testimony to our unifying faith in Christ. So unresolved conflicts. Oftentimes you'll hear us when we begin the Lord's Supper to encourage those who may have issues with others in the church to abstain on a given Sunday in order to make things right before the next time we celebrate together. Again, the, the expectation here is, is not that we be perfect, but that we take part in the Lord's Supper in a way that honors the Lord that we celebrate. We must also guard against the, the, the temptation to take part in the Lord's Supper uh, flippantly. Oh, well, this is just another thing that we do. This is why there's a, a, a time where it's very silent. Many of you have your eyes closed as the, as the elements are being distributed for the, for the Lord's Supper. There's reflection going on. There's, there, 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 there's giving of thanks. There's confession of sin. That's, that's what should be happening. Because we recognize that, 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 that we are publicly saying, Christ is our Lord. But we cannot do it in a flippant matter. 
Jesus died, that Jesus died to redeem us is the most important truth about you. It's not who your parents are. It's not what you do for a living. It's not how cute you are or what a great speaker you may be or how funny or not funny you may think you are. The most important reality in your life is the fact that you are Christ's. So should we not take seriously the public declaration of our faith in him? As we celebrate his sacrifice as a church, we must do so with reverence and a deep sense of gratitude. Listen, when we go to to many sporting events, the national anthem is played and and most people still rise and will take off their hats and, and place their hand over their hearts, sometimes even sing along with the national anthem. It's not done in honor of a piece of cloth and a song. It's, it's done in honor of what those things represent, right? How much more should we honor the celebration of worship which represents what Christ has done for us? To be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord is is to be guilty of disrespecting the Lord and and the price that he paid to redeem us. And this really does serve as a reminder, dear ones, that worship really does involve preparation, not just for the Lord's Supper, but it's important that we get in the habit of weekly preparing ourselves for the corporate worship of with God's people. Church isn't just a place that we go every week. It's who we are. We attend a service each week that is designed to honor the God who saved us. We sing of his greatness. We hear his word proclaimed and we give with gratitude. We pray and bear one another's burdens and we celebrate what Christ has done. These are weighty matters that that require that we begin to worship even before we get here. This is why Paul calls the Corinthians to examine themselves before taking part in the Lord's Supper in verse 28. When we examine ourselves, we we take an honest look at our attitudes and our actions. Are are there patterns of, of sin that we need to confess and repent of? Are there broken relationships with others? Am I focused on Christ or am I thinking about the myriad of things that I need to do this week? We examine ourselves in order to prepare ourselves to worship well, not just in the Lord's Supper, definitely in that, but we should also approach our weekly gathering with the same mindset. We see in verses 29 through 32 that the the blatant dishonoring of the Lord by the Corinthians led to God's discipline in the church. Paul writes, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, there is no clearer statement in Scripture about how God takes seriously the worship of his people. Remember, now Paul is writing to a church that that had several people in it who were living in blatant and unrepentant sin, and they were partaking in the Lord's Supper while openly neglecting one another, being at odds with one another, allowing sexual morality to exist within the church. And they were coming to the table thinking that God was good with all of it. So so the warning here is is not for your average Christian who who is struggling through life trying to be faithful, but we find that we stumble and fall. And and really, the, the closer that we grow to the Lord, we become what? Even more aware of how desperately we need God's grace every day. So we're not talking perfectionism here, but but Paul is writing specifically about how God has dealt with people who are profaning him honestly at every turn, it seems, as we read 1 Corinthians. But it speaks to the importance of doing things God's way, no less. God does not take lightly the worship of his people, and he does not take lightly his own glory. 
Things were so bad in Corinth that God was disciplining the church through illness and even death. And, and that may sound harsh to us, and, and the story I'm going to share next sounds even harsher. You guys know where I'm going. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. It's a time when the, the church was growing, and, and people were selling all that they had and giving to the church, and no one had any lack because the, the church was caring for one another. It's a beautiful picture. Long come Ananias and Sapphira, you know, we've got this piece of property, we're going to sell it, give our money to the church, but only part of it. And what happened next? Well, they show up at church, and, and you see from the passage that it would have been fine for them to not sell their property. It would have been fine for, fine for them to sell part of their property, or, or the property and give part of, the, of what they had received for it in the price to the church and keep the rest for themselves. But what they did is they came in and they said, no, what we're giving is the whole price for what we got for the property. In essence, lying. And what happened? Well, God struck Ananias dead and then when Sapphira came in hours later and told the same lie, God struck her dead too. That sounds harsh to us, but, but it was a clear statement to the church that the things that were going on, the giving of Ananias and Sapphira wasn't focused on God. It was on themselves. They, they wanted to appear that they had followed the example of others. And so they conceived this lie which was dishonoring to the Lord and were judged for it. Now, thank God that we don't get struck dead when we do stupid things like that. Now, However, that does not mean that the people of God are immune from the discipline of God. If you continue to read in that passage, you see that Paul even talks about this severe discipline that God's bringing on the church as being a good thing from God. Because why? It keeps them from being condemned by the world. So some of you are ill. Some of you have even died so that you would escape the judgment that the world is going to receive. The goal is to, is to bring them unto himself. Again, this is a, a sobering warning to, to guard against such flippant and self-absorbed approaches to worship. But these extreme steps of discipline come upon those who have resisted God's warning at every turn. They got here. <laughs> it was a process. These verses aren't designed to cause us to live in fear that God's going to make us sick or kill us when we blow it, but they serve to show the extent of the rebellion that existed in Corinth and the seriousness of God's discipline. But again, even in judging the people so harshly, God spared them greater condemnation. And then in verses three and four, 33 and 34 are simply Paul's prescription to the church of how they should behave until he's there to address the matter more fully. Now as I close this morning, I, I want to do so by reminding you first of the great assurance that we have in Christ. It would be easy to, to hear these verses and, and automatically, if you're struggling at this point in your life, assume that, okay, God's about to lower the boom on me. Understand that if you are sincerely seeking to walk faithfully before the Lord, if you're trusting Him, if, if in your struggle against sin, you, you, when you're convicted, you understand the need to turn and, and repent, or even during those seasons where, where we struggle in sin, the, the fact that we're being convicted and, and being called to grow and trust is evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. Christ saves to the uttermost. This is not a matter of, of, of out-sinning God's goodness. To be, able to be able to lose your salvation. I've always found that to be a really ridiculous theological perspective because how do you know when you've gone too far? If one sin... <laughs> or a number of sins is, is disqualifying, how do we know when we get there? Why does Jesus 
So if you have faith as a mustard seed, you're pleasing to God. It's because of where our faith is placed. Faith in and of itself is neutral. You can trust in good things. You can trust in bad things. Faith in Christ is what saves. So understand that that, 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 that that's not something that the sincere Christian loses. We struggle. Life is hard. We go through seasons where the appeal of the world is stronger than the appeal of, of what's right. And we struggle in faith, varying degrees of success and failure, but we, we do so with our eyes on Christ. But you need to understand that if you are in Christ, he's got you. And he's not going to let you go. He will bring you safely home. By way of application this morning, I just want to suggest one thing that we begin to do as a body. Commit in your own heart. Commit if you have a family. Commit to take seriously preparation for worship on Sunday morning. That might mean going to bed earlier than you normally do. That might mean taking time during the week to to read ahead and reflect on the next passage that's going to be preached on. That might mean praying together as a family for the needs of the church. But prepare yourself. Pray for those that lead. Pray for those that will be around you. Pray for the unbelievers among us that God would open their hearts and their eyes to the truth of the gospel. There are unbelievers here. I don't need to know you. God does. And if you don't believe, understand that Christ is your only hope because there is something much worse than what seems like the harsh judgment that God poured out on the Corinthians awaiting those who do not know the Lord. Torment, suffering, eternally cast out of the presence of God. Your only hope is through the sacrifice that Christ made to save you. You simply respond to him in faith. Let us pray. Lord, help us, I pray, to be faithful in our worship of you, uh, both for our good, but even more importantly, that you would be glorified. Glorified among us as, as the membership and the regular attenders, but also, Lord, that you'd be glorified in the eyes of those who visit us, both believers and unbelievers alike, that as people who don't know us enter these doors, that, that they would exclaim, surely these people worship the one true God. Be glorified among us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.